From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life Podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Sarah Green Carmichael is a senior editor at the award-winning Harvard Business Review. Indeed, she is my editor there. She's the host of the award-winning HBR IdeaCast, where I've had the pleasure of joining her a couple of times. And she is a regular speaker and moderator at conferences like South by Southwest, uh, the Drucker Forum, Thinkers 50, and other places. She, uh, prior to joining HBR, was a sports writer. And I think her one major failing is that she remains a devoted Boston Red Sox fan. But we're not going to talk about that. She taught middle school students. Uh, she worked as a researcher for the great Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist Ellen Goodman. And her own writing has been featured in, in many different places, many magazines and periodicals, including Boston Magazine, the Boston Globe, Politico, and elsewhere. Sarah graduated magna cum laude from Brown University. And in this episode, based on her really interesting uh, perch in the world of business ideas as an editor at, at HBR, uh, we, we focus on the topic of work obsession, working long hours. Well, is it hours or is it the emotional investment you have in your work? We talk about this issue, particularly among millennials, uh, the reasons for this and some ideas about how to avoid burnout. And as I often do in the second half of the radio show, I take calls from listeners, and in this episode of the podcast, we're going to include my conversation with one of those callers. So now, get set to listen and learn from Sarah Green Carmichael, who has her finger on the pulse of the modern workplace. Sarah Green Carmichael, welcome to Work and Life. Wow, Stu, that was quite an introduction. Thank you for having me. Well, it's it's great to have you here. So you've you've been you know really in the uh, in, in an unusual and and a special place uh, you know these this last decade or so as an editor at HBR.org, you see a lot of all the current thinking of the, of uh, people who are writing and trying to change the world uh, in the in the world of business and management. And there were so many things that we could talk about, but I thought uh, that we both have an interest in, um, well, a number of topics, but in particular this issue of workaholism. So let's, so the many sources of uh, insight and, and wisdom you've got about this, uh, I, I want to I wanna mm-hmm. explore this topic with you. You've been writing, too, about overwork and burnout, particularly um, among millennial workers, uh, according to a new sur- survey by Project Time Off and GFK, millennials are actually more likely to see themselves proudly as work martyrs than older workers and less likely to use all their vacation time. So why why are millennials placing such a uh, an emphasis on work martyrdom? 
Yeah. So I think um, there's a few things going into this. And just so we sort of know what we're talking about, work martyrdom is measured by statements like, no one else at my company can do the work while I'm away. I want to show complete dedication. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to think I'm replaceable or I feel guilty for using my paid time off. So Mm -hmm. um, I think part of the reason that millennials may feel this way, in part is because of the kind of economy that they've been thrust into. Um, If you have student loan debt and it was really hard to find a job, you're going to be really worried about losing that job. Hmm. Um, so you think the student loan crisis is, a, is one of the drivers for work martyrdom among young people? For sure, for sure. Hmm. Um, Are you still I, paying your student loans? I am not. I, uh, I am. I am very fortunate, um, mm-hmm. but I know that that I'm lucky to be in that position. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's also people don't. Um, I think a lot of older workers maybe don't realize how hard it is today to get that first job or to get one of those early entry-level jobs. I mean, there are literally hundreds of applications for every entry-level job. And I have talked to numerous people in their early 20s who say, like, I keep applying for jobs, I keep being a finalist for jobs, and I just can't get a job offer. Hmm. Um, so they think that's a, that's a big piece of it, too. Um, so that's one factor. I think the other factor is technology. Millennials are really comfortable with technology in a way that older generations aren't and are sort sure. of used to being always on and multitasking. And mm-hmm. so it's easy to sort of take that into the workplace and sort of be always on your work email or on Slack. Um, and I think also millennials are in some surveys more interested in finding meaning in their work than older generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you place so much emotional weight on your job, you really expect a lot out of it, too. So I think there's an emotional connection that's also probably happening there. Yeah, I've certainly observed that. You know, I did a study a couple of years ago um, that we actually published at hbr.org, some pieces about where that, sh- that compared the class of 1992 to the class of 2012 at Wharton and um, taken at, at 20 years apart, uh, uh, hundreds of questions of hundreds of people graduating in 1992 and then 20 years later. And among the, the, the many differences uh, was the one that's been widely observed, this greater sense of meaning uh, and purpose, uh, perhaps driven by the, you know, the, the fractured, broken world that we live in and a greater you know, a sense of pressure to try to fix it and do something about it. So that, those are many intense pressures So what, uh, that, that lead to a sense of, um, well, what do you call it, overwork? Work martyrdom, what's the best term to describe how much of the mental energy and attention young people are playing or paying to work? I think if I had to pick one phrase, it might be work obsession. Because mm-hmm. to me, that captures the kind of emotional uh, connection and intensity. And also, it, it doesn't quite put so much emphasis on hours. Because I think someone can work long hours and have a very healthy emotional relationship to work. Mm-hmm. And someone can work really hard to limit their hours to 40 hours a week in the office, but still have a really unhealthy relationship with their work and sort of think about it all the time and obsess over it too much. So it's not so much about time then. I think I think time is part of it, but I think the bigger issue is this kind of emotional connection to work and the work obsession and the kind of obsessive passion that someone can have uh, for just one part of their life. Mm-hmm. So... <clears throat> So is this harmful, do you think, this, this obsession that uh, especially young people seem to have with their work? I do, and I, I think it hasn't always been easy for me to come to that conclusion, but this hmm. is something that um, I'm 
just seeing in my role as an editor at HBR more and more research on the health effects mm-hmm. of long hours, but also the psychological effects of being too obsessed with, with your work. Um, and it, I think it would be similar if you were too obsessed with any one part of your life, right? It's not that there's something inherently wrong about mm-hmm. obsessing over work. There's just something wrong about being obsessive. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, but but you're, you're concluding that... Um, that these conditions uh, that that are particular to this generation, the, the tight labor market, the advent of the digital age, the uh, the need to feel a sense of deep connection, you know, uh, psychologically, philosophically with one's work, tends to promote obsession. With yeah, work. and I think we really have come to valorize it as a society. You know, mm. there's a lot of advertising now around. Um, you know, the tech industry about how you want to be a doer and, uh, you know, you want to work hard and have sleepless nights and go into work and crush it, you know, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> and we've sort of... Valor- I mean, stomping on it until <laughs> yeah. it is eliminated. Crush. Right. right. <laughs> so I think we really have talked about sort of workaholism in a way that glorifies it mm. as if you're some kind of work ninja when really, like, you're sitting at a laptop, let's be clear. Um, and that can be really important, but it doesn't mean that you are actually a hero in some way, especially if it's coming at the cost of your own sort of psychological and even physical health. Now, you're, we're speaking here like at your laptop. That, that's only like some segment of uh, the true. people who are working in the yeah. knowledge economy. There are many people, many people listening who work in manufacturing or in research labs or uh, you know, in hospitals, uh, all different kinds of settings where it's not just about you and your laptop in the world through that. That's definitely true. I do want to add, though, that because we're so obsessed with the tech industry in particular in America, mm-hmm. I think that part of the job that an elite does in a society is setting norms and modeling behavior. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So yeah. I think it, it, it is really important to mm-hmm. sort of talk about how this affects people at different socioeconomic, um, socioeconomic strata, but it, it is also, I think, something about the way we valorize sort of people who stay up and code all night, whether or not that is the work we do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, because it does set a kind of model uh, for what is aspirational for many people in society. And yeah, exactly. Uh, where a lot of uh, attention in the educational world is, is being focused. We need people who can program. We need people who are coders. We need everyone in STEM. We need to get more women in STEM. STEM, 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 STEM. It's all about... Uh, yes, preparing people for the world of technology, which of course is you know crucial and very very important if we're going to compete on the world stage. But um, <clears throat> so what what happens in the world of technology then really does have a broader impact than just that industry. Mm-hmm. I, t- I totally agree, and we're we're, we're seeing that also in uh, in policies about parental leave, where you know the major tech companies are falling over each other. You know, as to try to you know compete with who's got the best parental leave policy. Right, so right, and that that is something I would be happy to see trickle down to other non tech companies. Well, yes, I, I have spoken about it that way, and and I I think we all would like to see that. So, what's your take on that, uh, and what people are writing about and commenting on it at HBR.org with respect to technology and parental leave? So, this is one of those areas where we publish a lot of best practices on what companies should do. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of companies don't seem to be doing them. So it's kind of like, for me, it's one of those tricky things where I think I'm just going to keep running the same articles until every company has a good parental leave policy. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that 
this is an area where, you know, the United States is alone among nations, uh, comparable nations in the world, and not having any sort of national guidance on yes. this issue uh, in terms of paid leave. And I think, and there's also, even when you talk about FMLA, there's a lot of companies where they're small enough that that is actually not guaranteed. That's or the Family Medical Leave Act, which is the first uh, executive order that Bill Clinton signed when he was president. Yeah. And has been renewed. So, yeah, this is really a challenge, and I think it really mm-hmm. goes to the heart of some of this work-life stuff, because it's really, when people are new parents, right, you're setting new habits and establishing new norms and establishing new dynamics as a family, and if you don't have an equitable leave policy, that really sets up, I think, a harmful expectation from the very beginning. Yes, indeed. And as you can imagine, Sarah, we talk a lot about that issue on this show. So, Sarah, let's let's continue on on work martyrdom or or, or obsession and and what it means for parents. Um, so, what are you saying? Uh, what's what are the the hot issues with respect to um, workaholism and being a parent uh, that you are reading about, editing, and people are commenting on? So, I think that the issue with parents, I think, is slightly different than the issue we were talking about with mm-hmm. sort of young millennials, if you sort of take those groups exclusively, because, of course, a lot of millennials are parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, so I think the challenge for parents really is a time crunch challenge. You know, if part of what we were talking about with millennials is, well, it's not strictly the amount of time they're spending. It can just be kind of this emotional attachment to work. I think with with parents, it often really comes down to a kind of math equation. There just are not enough hours in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what worries me is that so much of the dialogue I see around parenting and making workplaces more parent-friendly is around flex time and saying, like, well, it's okay to leave at 5, like, as long as you check back in later. It's like, well, mm-hmm. maybe people shouldn't have to check back in later. Maybe working 9 to 5 should be enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we did a show not too long ago with Jason Freed, the CEO of, of Basecamp, who's uh, who is quite rigorous about maintaining those work boundaries for his company, uh, and it's uh, it's it has a, a powerful impact on their their performance, in addition to the health of uh, the people in their organization and and their families and their communities. Uh, but it's rare, right? Mm-hmm. So so that's an interesting uh, spin on the flex time. Uh, concept that it is somehow an insidious means of creating, uh, you know, persistently high work demands. It's just that you can choose when to when to have them, but you're still going to need them. Yeah, I think you know there have been some different well-intentioned attempts to fix this issue, and I feel like a little bit it's it's a little bit like a game of whack-a-mole, right? Because you're like, oh, schedules are inflexible. That's a problem. Let's have flexibility. You're like, oh, now we've just created an always-on culture. Um, So then you're like, well, we'll have a results-only work environment, and then, you know, other problems crop up in response to that that you hadn't anticipated. So I realize that this is, like, kind of a moving target and a really complicated issue to solve, but I think that the fundamental... um, I think underlying assumption that we have to really question is like what what is the purpose of a human life? Like why are we here? You know, mm-hmm. we are not homo economicus, like people here just to make money. Like we are here to be human beings and like thinking thoughtful, well-rounded people and work is a in a really important part of that, I think, but it's it's not the only part and maybe not even the primary part. Indeed. Uh and so so you're suggesting that 
advice from, oh, I don't know, people who would suggest you lean in more? Do you think that's counter to the argument you just made? I think it really depends on, I, I think that's a choice people need to kind of make for themselves. Mm-hmm. But I do think that, you know, some of the research we've published, and I, I'm thinking specifically of Aaron Reed, um, mm-hmm. um, did some really good research on how many people actually work 80 hours a week. And mm-hmm. she found that a lot of men just pretend to lean in. They pretend to work 80 hours a week. They don't actually. And women in her survey were much more honest about with and transparent with their companies and their bosses and their coworkers about when they were working and when they were taking personal time. And I, I would like to work in an organization and in a world where we can all be honest and transparent, but I recognize that's also not the world a lot of us live in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that like you could lean in or you could just pretend to lean in and it probably would have the hmm. same effect. Hmm. I, I don't recall what Aaron found about why it was that women were more, more honest. Do you? I don't think her study specifically found a reason, but mm. there have been other studies that show that women just tend to be more ethical at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and another way of looking at it is that women might be more naive. Women think that hmm. it's the right thing to be honest. Uh, and it could be that in a capitalist system, maybe it's not. So are you seeing people writing, uh, commenting about, uh, I mean, this is certainly, you're preaching to the choir here and, and many <laughs> of our listeners with respect to, you know, questioning one's core values and, and purpose and meaning in life and, and really trying to align your actions with your values. That's, that's you know, what I go after every day with students and clients and uh, and and they're really, you know, the people, the many people that I encounter throughout the world are hungry for uh, the, you know, the ideas and tools that that um, that I talk about and that others do that really help them address that very question that you raised: What is my purpose here, and how how does work fit in that? So. What is what is your take if you just look at sort of the macro level trends and how people are thinking and talking and acting about that issue? Do you see that the pendulum's going to swing uh, and that people will start to be and companies will start to support the notion of a more contained work experience to enable uh, the enrichment uh, that other parts of life bring? So I think that. I am sorry to be a Debbie Downer. I don't see a pendulum swinging. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do see individual people learning how to take the tools that can help them set better boundaries or find more balance. I see individual people taking action with those kinds of things in ways that help them. Mm-hmm. And so I think there can be really a grassroots effort to get your own life under control, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. I think if you're a manager of people, you have an enormous opportunity to help scale that. And I think if you're a CEO like Jason Fried, who you mentioned earlier, um, you have a really great opportunity to do that in your company. Uh, and I think his example and the research we have shows that you will not sacrifice performance if you do that. In fact, you will see people coming up with more creative ideas and being sort of bringing better versions of themselves to the office if, if you give them the kind of work-life balance that they need. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, I've, I've studied this, this problem directly and indeed found that when you help people to discover what they really care about and then make changes in their lives to better align what they care about with what they do every day and, and in ways that, that satisfy the interests of people not just at work but in other parts of their lives, they end up making adjustments to their lives that have fewer hours devoted to work, more to the other parts of their lives, and they perform better at work. 
And I think what's really important about your approach, Stu, is that it starts with experiments. And I think for a lot of mm-hmm. people who are emotionally attached to their work, the idea of pulling back is frightening, right? Yes. Um, and a lot of managers would find it frightening if one of their star people is like, I want to pull back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that experimental sort of try it and see how it works approach is a really, really good one. Well, and to approach it with you know the intent to make things better. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I can scale back here, uh, you know, contain you know, the, the obsession in ways that will ultimately produce better value for this business. And, and let's, let's try that and see if that works uh, because I'll be less distracted or more satisfied in the other parts of my life or, you know, healthier or just less of an asshole, <laughs> you know, because I'm exercising or something like that. Uh, and, you know, we see that. And here I'm just quoting my good friend, uh, Bob Sutton, uh, who was on the show recently, who's written the amazing uh, the Asshole Survival Guide, a follow to the No Asshole Rule, which uh, is just a required required reading for everyone who listens to this show. So so what is to be done? What, what do you see as some of the bright ideas on the horizon in terms of, especially parents, if we could stay on that, because as you know, I'm working on this new project about parents. Um, and, you know... I, what do you think, what are you hearing, what are people writing about with respect to being available as a parent, not just in terms of the time crunch, but the quality of the attention that parents can bring to their kids, given the work that they do? Yeah, so I think uh, one of the saddest studies I came across recently uh, was a study that was of parents at Disney World, and they wanted to see where parents and kids' attention was focused Mm-hmm. when they were at Disney World. And what the researchers found was that the kids only wanted to interact with their parents' phones because that's what the parents were interacting with. Wow. And so to me, the lesson there is like, no matter what you're doing with your kids, just like put your phone down. You know, we don't realize often how much we're looking at those phones or, or how rude we're being to the other people we're mm-hmm. with when we're always on them. Um, but so that would just be one really simple thing. Uh, just, you know, Leave the phone somewhere else. It's simple, powerful, but, you know, the, the question I have about that is, you know, for the digital natives, uh, you know, who are, you know, increasingly coming to, to dominate the, 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 you know, entrance to the labor force, where the, you know, the norm is, you know, continual, constant engagement, you know, with the digital stream, how do you help them to see that that's harmful, especially, especially as they become parents? Well, I think, so, a couple things. One is that if you are a parent today raising kids, you have an opportunity to inculcate values in those children. They might not listen to you when they're teenagers, but you can try. (laughs) Um, And so you can sort of help shape what the norms of the next generation are going to be. I also Mm -hmm. think, you know, I have hope. Like, I think that my people my age, I'm in my mid-30s, we're the kind of maybe worst digital people because we grew up without it and now we have it and we're sort of obsessed with it. Whereas I think I see, you know, kids today in high school have no problem leaving their phones in the other room, actually. And there are Hmm. schools where it's like a status symbol at this high school to walk around with your phone in airplane mode. So I think like... Really? Yes. Yes. So I think like younger kids get it. And I think it's us in the middle who like didn't have this technology and didn't grow up with it who really struggle the most. So you're saying the cool thing now is to be, is to be offline? I mean, sample size of one high school, but yeah. <laughs> so you think we're going to see that as, as part of a trend, Sarah? 
I I would love to. I mean, I, it mm-hmm. might drive their parents a little crazy because often what is pushing that connection is the idea of the digital umbilical cord where, like, parents want to have a way to get in touch with their kids all the time. Yes, um, of course. I also think parents really have to think about, you know, if they're over-scheduling their children with a million activities, what is the signal that they are sending about the value of downtime and balance? Um and I know it's like an arms race to get your kid into college, and every kid has to do like oboe and karate and fencing and judo and piano and, mm-hmm. you know, a million activities. But I think part of the reason we see millennials today more likely to identify as work martyrs in surveys is because they have been raised with this sort of plethora of activities, and mm-hmm. they don't know what it's like to just sort of sit down and do nothing. I did a lot of that as, a, as an aimless youth, um, and you know, look where it got me. But yes, <laughs> no, really, it's 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 true. The lost art of just contemplation and walk, going for a walk uh, is is. Uh, hmm. So, are are let, I'm going to ask you a personal question here, mm-hmm. Sarah. And you can just tell me to you know that's none of your business, too. I can't believe you're asking me that. But do you have plans to have children at some point in your life? So here's the thing. I would like to. I'm happy to answer that question. Okay. Um. I also think it's really important for people without children to have work-life balance. And I do think that sometimes when we talk about work-family conflict, we just leave out people who don't have kids. And I, I think there should be ways that you can spend your time that are not raising kids and not working that are considered valuable and worth defending. Well, of course, of course. No, when I started the Work-Life Integration Project at, at the Wharton School in 1991, it wasn't the Work-Family Project. Right. It was the Work-Life. And, and, the, and the explicit intent there was to, dem- you know, was to declare this is not just about parents and kids, for sure, right. for sure. I think, since, I think what, I, what I worry about is a lot of the articles I see coming across my desk mm-hmm. are all like, Work family, work family, work family. And I'm like, mm. hey, what about other, like, what about hobbies? Remember hobbies? Of course. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, that's true that, uh, it, you know, and, and I think increasingly true as fewer and fewer people indeed choose to uh, to become parents in this world. Uh, Sarah, we, we have to bring this to a close here. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about the remarkable body of work that you are producing? Thank you. Well, so we have a lot of great resources at hvr.org. And, um, you know, whether your, your challenge is setting boundaries or finding balance or just emotionally disconnecting from your work in a healthy way, I'd like to think that hbr.org has some resources to help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, that's easily found online. Um, anything else you want to say just in closing here about like uh, advice you might have for uh, millennials as they seek a more meaningful, purposeful world and life? That's a really good question. Um, I think... You do you, be your best self, you know, realize when you're putting pressure on yourself versus legitimate external pressure. Um, And don't be afraid to, like, take a walk in the woods without your earbuds in. That's great advice. (laughs) Sarah, you you are the best editor. I so much appreciate the work that you do for me personally and now for the world of business ideas on a a broad scale. I really appreciate you taking some time to, to speak with us tonight. Thanks so much for having me, Stu. So, yeah, workaholism, workaholics, work obsession, uh, whatever you want to call it, this is what I want to talk with you about. 
I'll just start out by asking you this question. Are you obsessed with work? Are you a workaholic? What that particular experience is like for you, what it means for you, and perhaps what you know, uh, the, the question of what it means for the rest of your life. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's harmful. Uh, maybe it's something that you choose. Maybe it's something that other people choose for you. Tell me about your experience with the pressures to stay engaged in your work beyond what is perhaps good for you, good for your good for your work. Are you suffering or feeling any of these pressures? And what's it, what's it mean for you? Hey, Jane from Missouri, welcome to Work and Life. Hi, thank you. Tell me what's what? What are you thinking? What, what what's your response to my question? Well, I just called in. Um, it rings true to me being a workaholic. I actually work in the social media industry, so okay. I'm on 24 mm-hmm. 7. And my clients sometimes expect me to work around the clock, but it's also my personal obsession that I need to know what's going on every minute of the day. So there's really no separation of work no, and life. No I'm separation. In it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and how's that working for you? Is it good? Is it not good? Good. I don't. I feel like um, I like it, and it keeps me energized. But I know that I'm not as healthy or well rested as I probably should be. Ah, how do you know that? Oh, you know, I def- I could not tell you the last time I got eight hours of sleep in one night. Um, hmm. My, you know, exercise routine is a little bit non-existent these days. So I, I know that being workaholic is not a wonderful thing right now. But it, it's paying the bills and it's it's I feel like it's where I should be right now but mm-hmm. I know that mm-hmm. life will change eventually. Hmm. What will change? What are you what are you thinking of there? Um well priorities to um with family, children, mm-hmm. um you know once the kids are older and more self-sufficient I should probably put myself in a working environment that is more 9 to 5 and not, you know, on call around the clock type of thing. So you have children? Yeah. And can I ask how old they are? Um, three and one. Three and one? Mm-hmm. You probably hear the little one-year-old crying in the background right now. I, I actually don't. I heard some, some extraneous sounds there. So, wow. So how are you able to uh, be, as you described it, fully immersed 24-7 on that digital stream and be the kind of parent you want to be right now? Sure. Um, and it's, it's really hard. And I wouldn't give up my professional life mm-hmm. to be a full-time stay-at-home mom, but um, you know, it allows me the flexibility to be with the kids when we have a school appointment or a doctor appointment, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you, control, know, you control when you turn it on, when you turn it off? I do. I control. I don't have to sit at my desk nine to five sort of thing. I work um, nights and weekends and um, I, <laughs> bad addiction, right? I usually wake up in the early morning, say four or five o'clock in the morning when they're still sleeping. And mm-hmm. that's when I get in the bulk of the work that I do every day. That might not be a bad so, thing. You know, when, yeah. when my kids were young, that's, I got up before the you know crack of dawn and uh, that's when my mind is, was freshest, still is true. And I, that's how I got to write articles and books when I was younger, at, mm-hmm. when, when the kids were young. And, and, you know, then they'd wake up and I'd be available and I'd, I'd you know, turn away yeah. from work. Of course, this was in the pre-digital era. Um, the, I think that was called the Mesozoic era. But no, it was, you know, it was a different time. So it was easier <laughs> to turn it off. So how are you doing that um, when you're with them? Turning it off? 
Um, it's hard to not, you know, constantly be checking my cell phone for my incoming emails when I'm with them. But of course. I, I, I try to try to put it aside for a couple hours at a time, not, you know, not check in and, right. and have a little off time and be with them um, when I can. And then, then I'm back to work when they're napping and when they go to bed at night. So one of the things that I have found in my work with what I call total leadership and, and that a lot of my students and clients uh, do and they, and they find it to be um, a good path to, 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 you know, to making you know, an, an adjustment um, would be to just try a small experiment where you know, not for a few hours but for like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, which is much more doable, right? Sure. Right. So you you get in the habit of you you start to train your mind to be able to shut it off and to feel okay about it, uh, and not be you know anxious about what you're you know fear of missing out uh, or you know something 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 comes that you that you that you might somehow overlook, not be immediately present to respond to. If you just um, try a small experiment of a small amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, that that can help you to develop the, especially when you look and say, well, what was that like? How did it work? What was it? You know, was it difficult for me? What was hard about it? Uh, you know, is there some other way for me to do this? Maybe five minutes, or maybe I could extend it longer. What do you think about what I'm saying? Yeah. So you mean really just to focus and concentrate and and really. Um, put my mind on being present for five, ten minutes and not be distracted and just really focus on the kids. That's and, exactly it. Yeah. That, that's mm-hmm. exactly it. And and to try that in very small increments at first just to see what that's like. Yeah, absolutely. All right, um, I well, do try to do that, but I, I will continue to do it, and I, I well, appreciate your, well, your suggestion here. Especially if you pay attention to the impact on how you feel and how you feel about your relationship with your kids. Mm-hmm. Give it a shot. Let me know what happens, Jane. Thank you so much for calling Work and Life. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Jane. Susan, uh, we just have a couple minutes here. Tell me, what are you thinking? Um, I'm thinking I'm a workaholic undiagnosed. Okay. All right. Well, you just diagnosed yourself, so congratulations. So what what does that mean for you? It means that that, uh, I guess what a lot of friends and a lot of people have been telling me through the years are probably true. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's trying to release that or get away from it. I don't, I don't have children. I'm actually driving home from work tonight about eight o'clock. I was in at about six thirty seven this morning. It's a long um, day. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm in accounting. Um, so that, that tends to be a long hour profession to begin with. So um, is this a problem for you or is it something that works okay for you? Um, it's been problematic. Um, I would say recently, and probably last year, I had a job, uh, another job that I worked at where I was working probably 80 hours a week for about six or seven months, mm-hmm. and finally I left the job uh, because it was just uh, it was too much on me, and then I didn't realize it was an issue until my husband got up on Saturday morning, and I said, I'm here, and he said, great, I'm going to play tennis, and I'm going to go have breakfast with the guys, I'll see you around too, and I said, well, you were, I don't understand, I'm, I'm home don't you normally stay home except playing tennis and coming back? And he's like, no, for the past five months, I've been going off and playing tennis and having lunch with the guys. Wow. And you, I, you didn't know that. <laughs> no. So was that a wake-up call for you, Susan? It was a wake-up call for me. Um, but I don't know if the reason somebody had mentioned that maybe it's an insecurity part, but I've hmm. always 
been a workaholic or somebody that works long hours mm-hmm. um, since I can remember. I'm, 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 I'm older now, but in my 20s, I was the same way. Hmm. So what was it? what is it that you think would be good to try to change? That's probably it. I, I don't know where to start. I mean, I, there's, there's a sense, like the woman before had said that she gets up early to be mm-hmm. able to do some work because she has children. Mm-hmm. I got into the habit of getting up at 3 in the morning to be able to review batches and get things done mm-hmm. so that things mm-hmm. can be posted because during the day I was being pulled in different directions. Well, is, is spending more time with your husband something that you would want to do and that he would want to do? Oh, yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. So, um, well, that's great. So I'm wondering, <laughs> I mean, it's good to have that in your life. Right. <laughs> no, yeah, that's, not all not all couples have that, you know. Uh, right. Well, he's very supportive. He's very supportive, and he knows it. He knew it when he married me. So, um, but you know. Well, I, I wonder if part of what you do together could help you to see, um, you know, the the value that you bring to that relationship and to other parts of your life, which might perhaps diminish the intensity of your you know, uh, engagement or your need to be, you know, fully engaged and valued in your work. What do you think? I, I think that would, I think that's what I'd like to have. It's, it's trying to, I think, get over the, um, the challenges that are presented to me sort of as a problem solver. And there's sort of like a, like a puzzle joy in doing that, if that makes sense. Well, of course, of course. Uh, you love your work, you, you, and you, you're good at it, sounds like, and you want to be fully engaged in it. All I'm suggesting here, and we have to wrap it up here, and Susan, we can we okay. can pick this up offline, uh, is that you, you think about a way to just carve out a small amount of time, a small amount of time to be with your husband and to do something that's going to make you feel good about yourself. Right. And just to see... What, what happens as a result of that in terms of, you know, what you then bring back to your work when you return to your work? What do you think? What about, I think that's a good idea. And the one part that I'm concerned of is what happens when you get back to your work and your work is, is now overpiled? Well, just, just try it in a very small increment, like a, okay. small, a small amount of time so, so that that won't happen. Give it a shot, Susan, and, okay. and then come back to me and let me know how it goes. Susan, thank you so much okay. for calling Work and Life. I really appreciate it. Uh, and thank you all for joining us. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sarah Green Carmichael and that it stimulated some new ideas for you about how our society glorifies obsession with work and perhaps made you think a little bit differently about how you engage with your work. Are you obsessed with your work? Are you a work martyr or workaholic? Well, here's a challenge for you, an invitation. You know, I'm a great believer in the theory of small wins as a way of creating meaningful change over time. So how about trying some small experiment It could be even a matter of just a couple of minutes where you consciously, intentionally, deliberately disconnect from your work when you wouldn't otherwise normally. What happens when you do that? What do you discover about yourself, about the people around you, and about the quality of your work and your ability to actually produce results that you care about? Any 
change in the world, after all, starts with the most difficult thing to change in the world, and that is you. So, give that a shot, and let me know how it goes. I'd love to hear from you. The address is friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or you can message me on Twitter, at Stu Friedman. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.